This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Welcome to this week's Agent Provocateur. Our guest this week is the former captain of the Providence College hockey team, a Harvard Law graduate, a former player agent, the former general manager and or president of the Hartford Whalers, Vancouver Canucks, Anaheim Ducks, where he won his Stanley Cup, the Toronto Maple Leafs, Calgary Flames, and was recently president of the Pittsburgh Penguins, a former top executive and former uh, top lieutenant to Gary Bettman at the NHL, a broadcaster, and author of the fabulous book, Burke's Law, A Life in Hockey, with a collaboration with Stephen Brunt, another brilliant writer. He's currently the executive director of the Professional Women's Hockey League Players Association. He's also one of the original founders with his son, Patrick, of the You Can Play Project, launched with a goal to end homophobia in sports, working to ensure that LGBTQ plus athletes, coaches, and fans around the world are treated with respect by the sports world. Let's give a big welcome to Brian Berkey Burke. Hey, Alan. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me on, guys. And uh, I'm sorry, everyone, to have to listen to that long introduction, but I get fired a lot. <laughs> Well, I think if you stick around long enough, we all do. Uh, uh, it's become a habit for me. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on. We really appreciate it. You and I have known each other a long, long, long time. Um, I haven't always been the most popular person in the NHL league offices uh, where you worked for uh, many years, but I've always had tremendous respect for you. Uh, sometimes I've disagreed with some of the things you've said. I'm sure many times you've disagreed with some of the things that I've said, but we've always gotten along well. We've always respected each other. And, uh, and I think you're, you've had a remarkable career. You were respected, uh, and honored voice in the game. And, uh, and I, I feel personally very appreciative for you to be here. Well, thank you, Alan. You, you've uh, the old saying: you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. You've managed to break a lot of eggs, but I have never wavered from uh, my respect for you and the 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 fervor with which you rec recommend your recognize and and rec represent your clients. So, to me, the feeling is mutual, and it's an honor to be on. Thank you. I, I would love to focus our discussion on uh, the recent developments with the NHL um, and and special in initiatives, including um, um, nights for military appreciation, indigenous peoples, uh, people of color, uh, and and particularly also uh, pride nights. Uh, can you tell us a little bit? Give people a little history of. Um, how the NHL came to uh, embrace these special initiatives meant to uh, um, make really people feel like hockey is for everyone who might be outside the traditional hockey communities of years gone by and, uh, and, and what happened last year? 
Okay, so let's a little background first for people who don't know me. I got involved in this because I had a son named Brennan who passed away in a car accident in a blizzard. He was openly gay. had come out less than a year before he was killed. And uh, our family founded You Can Play, the You Can Play project after that to fight homophobia. So that's how I got into this fight in the first place. Um, special interest nights. I The first one I remember, and I should have checked before I went on the air, but the first one I remember is Hockey Fights Cancer. But then me, uh, uh, Military Appreciation Night, all these different wonderful causes that the league embraced and said, we're going to be leaders in this area. We're going to recognize all of these. The least popular of which in some circles was Pride Nights. And so when the league put in a Pride and the NHL, by the way, as annoyed as I am at them right now for all that's happened here with Pride, the NHL has been a tremendous leader in this, in this, a tremendous ally in this area. The NHL has been groundbreaking, 100% supportive up until you know, last couple of months. So start there. Um, I think the league's embracing the LGBTQ plus community is important. I think it's an important part of the population. It's an important part of our audience, and we want to have everyone feel welcome there. So Pride Nights were a great way to do that. Then, of course, uh, the Pride Sweaters and Pride Nights uh, hit a bump in the road because we had players object to wearing the Pride Sweaters. And one group, based this on uh, fundamental religious principles. And one group uh, said it was because of the Russian presence of Russian players. I actually have a little bit of time for the Russian players. If there's actually a threat, there there isn't one that I can see, but there is a threat and someone says, I'm not putting my family at risk. I have some time for that. The rest of it, I don't. I, I think that you know the, the, me the message for Pride Nights is not – I'm signing up to join the gay community. I'm going to marry a, a male person. Is you're not signing on for any ideology at all. You're saying you're welcome here. Everyone is welcome here. That's all pride is, is everyone is welcome here. And for religious purposes to fight that really bothers me. Uh, the, the Russian thing, again, I have some time for. You have to, I think. But, again, I've seen no imminent threat. Anyway, so they decide to get rid of Pride Night sweaters and Pride Nights. I don't like that, but I get the logic to it, okay? I get the logic to it. The latest step is they banned Pride Tape, which to me is really crossing the line. It's, it said this one particular community, these are all the rules for that one community, but this one particular community, LGBTQ plus community, you can't be celebrated by wearing Pride Tape. I don't get it. Okay, so what, what's behind it? Because the ban applies to players using Pride Tape in practice, uh, players using Pride Tape in pregame warmups, uh, which was very popular across the league, and a client of mine, Jonathan Huberto, was the first NHL player to wear Pride Tape and use it during an NHL game. And and it, what? Why would the league go to that extent? Swing so far after, like you said, being supportive all the for the last decade. I, I don't know. I don't understand it, Alan. I, I, I think I'm a fairly smart person. I read a lot. I use big words. I think I'm a fairly smart person. I can't understand this. It's a fight that no one wanted and no one needs. I don't get it. It's like picking a fight, like saying, okay, we're going to ban Pride. So let's say no one ever went – here's my view on it. No one ever went to the NHL and said, 
we got to get rid of these pride nights. So let's figure out or these military appreciation nights. We got to get rid of this recognizing soldiers. Let's get rid of military appreciation night. If we do that to make it look good, we got to get rid of all of them. That's not what happened. You know what happened here is someone said, we got to stop these pride nights. These are the same nuts that are trashing uh, Target stores and taking out all the pride displays, right? So someone said, let's get rid of pride nights. And it became uh, popular, not just with the NHL, but with all the leagues. Some support saying maybe it's being rammed down people's throats. I get that from people all the time. I'm sick of being a pride being rammed down my throat. So they get rid of the sweaters. Okay, again, I don't like it. I don't agree with it, but I can see it and see some logic. The last part, I don't get, Alan. I don't understand it. So the NHL issued a memo uh, in the summer, and uh, I read the memo. I had a copy of it, and I read it, and it made absolutely no sense. I I read the memo, and I'm like, what is this? And I think a lot of NHL teams had the same opinion because many of them reached out to the league and said, we don't understand what you're trying to say here. Is this allowed? Is this not allowed? What's the deal here? So then the NHL issued what they called a clarifying memo. And the clarification made it very clear that things like pride tape, um, the wearing of pride jerseys in warm-up, uh, completely banned. And, 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 and for me, what I don't understand is I understand if a player is not comfortable wearing a pride jersey, no one should say to him, you have to wear it. I personally may not agree with his opinion, but I think it's his right to say, I don't want to wear it. But I think we had a total of five, six players across the entire league who opted out and 740 players who had no problem uh, and were pleased and happy to support Pride Night. So why should the four or five, why should those players take away something that is meaningful, supportive, raises money and, and actually contributes to growing the game. Why should they be allowed to take that away? I agree. I agree with that. And that to me, it made no sense. It will never will. And to me, like you say, for five players to hold this issue hostage for the other 740, and they won. They won the fight. They got people to say, okay, we're not going to wear pride sweaters anymore. And as a consequence of that, consequence of that, we can't have military appreciation either, and we can't have hockey fights cancer night, which to me is it's not just the money that we raise on those nights. It's the awareness, and it's saying to the hockey community at large, everyone here is important to us. So to me, we lose all that. But, okay, again, at the end of the day, I don't accept it, but I, if I can live with that, with the sweaters, the last step I just don't get. I just don't understand it. And like you say, so you don't. no one's asking to wear a pride sweater. No one's asking you to wear pride tape. They're just saying if you want to wear pride tape, you can. They're saying, no, no, you can't do that. Well, I got news for you. I think that's a problem. Adam? Yeah, Brian, you worked at, at head office. You know Gary uh, Bettman. You know Bill Daly very, very well. Um, you know, these guys, this, this is the type of policy change that comes right from the top. And I'm wondering um, – and I know we keep saying we don't get it, but when we when we dive into who they are and how they operate as a as a management group, 
whether you like them or you don't. Um, I'm trying to figure out what their rationale personally would be here. Is it that they just don't want the bad PR of certain players wearing it and certain players not? Uh, what could possibly be the benefit to the NHL for enacting a policy like this? The pride tape specifically. Well, I will, I will tell you this, Adam. I don't suspect any ulterior motive or sinister motive on behalf of Gary Bettman or Bill Daly. This is in response to pressure that they're getting, is my view. I, you know, Gary can tell you what he thinks. In my view, it's significant pressure on the right. These are people who are posting videos of people using automatic weapons to shoot up cases of Bud Light. I, I can promise you I'll never drink a beer again in my life except Bud Light. I can't understand that. And they're trashing Target stores. They don't like pride displays in Target stores, so they trash Target stores. That's what we're facing right now. We're facing a, a downturn to the right on this issue, and it's dangerous, and it's it's really disturbing to someone like me who had a gay kid. This is really a, a sinister element here that's taken over this issue, and I think there's significant pressure to not glorify Pride Week, not make it special. And you saw the NFL went along with this, by the way. It's not just the NHL. So you're going to see other pressure on that. We don't want to jam down our throats. I get that all the time from people who send me emails. We don't want the pride issue jammed down their throat. I don't either. But I think we have to celebrate this community. There was just a poll, I think a CNN poll, a reputable poll, restating that the majority of Americans favor protections of LGBTQ plus liberties. That's the majority of Americans. That's not 20%. That's not 25% of majority. So this is an important group. It's an important part of our demographic. It's an important part of our society. We should be celebrating the gay community, the LGBTQ plus community. We shouldn't be persecuting them. We shouldn't allow anyone else to stand by and watch it. Then to follow that up, they represent the owners. Could this be something that the owners are seeing, are afraid of, uh, agree with? Um, I mean, you've dealt with the ownership groups. What do you think? Well, I, I think at some point, every league has to respond to pressure from its owners and from the public. And public sentiment has swung the wrong way for me on this issue. There's a lot of public sentiment, not a majority, like I said, but there's a lot of public sentiment that, okay, we accept that the LGBTQ plus community has rights. They're important. Just don't ram it, don't jam it down our throats. We don't need to wear pride sweaters. You can have a pride night without pride sweaters. Just don't jam it down our throats. So that's some fatigue from the pride issue from, that I sense and some resentment. And I see a, a sinister right turn anyway on a lot of issues. Like hate crimes in a lot of areas are up. So I think it's a combination of a lot of pressure from above, uh, from that side of things. And, and it's an easy solution. We don't have to have military appreciation nights. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to have hockey fights, cancer night. We don't have to have Black Lives Matter nights. We don't have to have LGBTQ plus nights, you know, because we're, we're going to do away with all that. That doesn't change the sentiment of the people that comprise this league and buy tickets and, and watch the games on TV. So, Berkey, did, did you ever have an opportunity in the last uh, – a week to 10 days to pick up the phone, call Gary Bettman and have a conversation with him about the new league policy? No, but I don't think Gary owes me that. I, I, if I had picked up the phone, I know Gary would have taken the call. He's, he's a, first off, he's a wonderful person. 
And second, he's not afraid of anybody or any issue. So had I picked up the call, I, what I did was waited a couple of days to see what the, if there was, a, I thought there might be a retraction on this. And I still think there might be and hope there might be. So I gave it a couple of days and then I issued my statement, which, you know, I feel very strongly about this. This is a, a wrongful step, a hurtful step. And it's one that I just don't get it. Like I say, and, and Adam, you, you don't know me well, but you're, but Alan does. And, I say I understand the sweater issue. I don't agree with the sweater issue. I do not agree. I don't. I don't understand it, or don't agree with it. But I understand the sentiment. I can't understand this next step. Mm. It's like a vindictive, petty, uh, and by the way, you know, pop the balloons on the way out of the party thing. I, I hope you'll indulge me. I have your statement in front of me, and I'd like to read it so everybody can hear it because okay. uh, I think it's very well done and. Uh, and a great summary of, of, of a lot of issues all tied in together here. <clears throat> I'm deeply disappointed in the NHL's decision to ban on-ice support for community causes. I've worked in a variety of NHL markets over the last 35 years and have always made it a priority for my teams to commit sub substantial time, energy, and resources to engage with and support local organizations and causes. It's been one of the great joys and responsibilities of my life to see the positive impact hockey can have on the community. The NHL has been an enthusiastic, invaluable supporter of a number of important causes and groups, to name just a few, indigenous peoples, first responders, military heroes, cancer survivors, women in hockey, Victims of civic disasters, people of color, and of course, the LGBTQ plus community. The new league policy strips clubs and players of one of the most important and visible ways of supporting causes they care about. Let's be clear. This is not inclusion or progress. This decision does not grow the game and does not make our fans feel welcome. Fans look to teams in the league to show they are welcome, and this directive closes a door that's been open for the last decade. Make no mistake, this is a surprising and serious setback. I have spoken to many who are heartbroken, angry, and disappointed by the decision. If you are a member of one of the communities who has been celebrated as part of the Hockey is for One initiative, Please know that you are still a valued member of the hockey community. We will not lose the incredible progress we've made in inclusion over the last decade, and we are counting on the league for continued support and leadership in this area. Brian Burke. Wow. Wow. Uh, it, took a few it took a few drafts of that one, Alan, as you can imagine. <laughs> Can, uh, can can you tell us about the people or groups that have reached out to you that are angry and heartbroken and disappointed? Most of the calls that I got and the conversations I had were personal, and I'll leave it at that. Someone asked me that on camera uh, two days ago, and I said I really, really can't. Uh, I wouldn't want to bring someone into this podcast by name, but you know, people that are touched by this and, and angered by it, um, I think the, the number one thing is I think people have to realize my my history 
is, as I said at the beginning, I have always, all of my teams, I have made them do more in the community than the next three teams combined on most, most teams. Going back to my very first GM job in 1992-93 in Hartford, I've told my players, I'm going to do more than you, I'm going to do more than I ask you to do, so don't ever complain. If you ever don't want to do something, don't want to go to a school, don't want to go to a library, tell me, and I'll trade you tomorrow. So the fact of the matter is, this has been a lifelong commitment and passion of mine. The LGBTQ plus I came to lately because of my son. But I've been a passionate supporter of all of these important causes since I got into the game. So it goes back with my mom and dad since I was 16. You couldn't donate blood in Minnesota unless you were 18. But when you were 16, you could do it with the signature of a parent. We started donating blood at age 16. I don't know how many gallons I've donated. I can't give blood anymore out of out of my uh, the front regular place I donate blood in your arms because my veins are shot. And not because I have a drug issue, but I have no veins left in my arms. So this goes back to when I was a kid. So to me, and the LGBTQ plus portion of it is from the heart. If you have a gay kid, you're a, you're a believer. You're a zealot. You're part, of the, you're part of the war. You have no choice unless you're a heartless bastard and then get off this podcast. But if you care, if you have a kid, you care that much, you're in the fight. So this is an easy one for me. Um, I, I have never asked my players to do anything they've said no to. I had a guy call me in Calgary a couple of years ago, and he identified himself. It wasn't one of these anonymous haters. I get some of those too. And he said, I know why you marched in the Calgary Pride Parade, but why did you make Monaghan and Giordano do it? He said, I know you had a reason to march, but why did you make our players march? And I said, you got to be kidding me, right? Make? Mark Giordano asked me if he could march. Sean Monaghan asked me if he could march. Matt Stage had asked me if he could march. I didn't ever drag anyone anything, but they all showed up and they marched. So this is what you go up against when you deal with this stuff. But um, And we're making great progress. You look at where the gay community was when my son came out compared to today. It's awesome. The progress has been steady, spectacular, but we still have so far to go. And this is just a setback. This is this won't stop our progress, but it's an unnecessary and really annoying setback. And, and what is the best way to take a step forward now? Because a lot of people that I'm talking to in the community, Brian, on, on my other show, uh, the Steve Dangle podcast, and talking to listeners and direct messages on Instagram and Twitter, um, they feel a little bit at a loss. How do you push the cause forward within the game um, if the players can't express themselves individually with even something small like pride team? Well, Adam, I hope there's a retraction on this. I hope they turn back the clock on this whole issue. But if they don't, I think I would say to people, I just don't – you cannot change – the ignorance and the bias that exists against the gay community. You're talking about centuries, centuries of bias. We're not going to kick that door in. We're not going to wake up one day and say, okay, we've eliminated racial prejudice. We're not going to kick the door in and say we've el eliminated bias towards homosexuals. We're not going to fix that overnight. It takes years and years of work. These are mud walls that will, will erode over time. They're not doors you kick in. So the progress we've made and continue to make, we have to continue to make that progress. You, should, you have to continue to march in pride parades and support, you know, support You Can Play. Write a check to You Can Play if you want to really help. 
So we have to keep doing what we're doing, keep growing the movement, keep generating support, keep the minds and hearts of everyone moving in the right direction, and we'll deal with this setback as just another setback. So Scott Lawton with the Philadelphia Flyers um, was asked about uh, Pride Tape and Pride Nights uh, a couple of days ago, and he made a point of saying, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't really care about any league policy. I'm going to use Pride Tape, uh, and and I, I don't know what the league is going to do about it, but I don't really care. And uh, there are a couple of other players that have publicly said they're going to use Pride Tape anyway. And uh, uh, I even uh, read that an NHL team uh, ordered a case of Pride Tape last week uh, from the company that um, manufactures the tape. I've talked with several of my clients who say they're going to use it and they don't care about the ban. How do you feel about that? Do you support that? Well, I hope the league retrenches from this. I hope they retract this policy so players can wear pride tape if they want to. As far as me encouraging people to engage in civil disobedience, I'll, I'll, I'll let people follow their conscience on this. Okay. I, I, have a, I have a question for both of you. Do you really think the league is going to find somebody for breaking that rule? Well, the, the only the only issue, the reason I'm not going to say everyone should wear pride tape is I want to see if the league has a more intelligent, more unified response to this. But no, I don't think they're going to. I don't think they have a choice. That being said, <coughs> players wear a uniform for a reason. Uniform, by definition, means one form. You wear one thing. Everyone wears the same thing. The NFL is uniform. Police on the sideline. No one's allowed to vary from the uniform. So I could see if they want to get technical and say, no, no one has to wear or enact a rule. It has to be black or white tape, although lots of players have used other kinds of tape. I'm hoping the league comes up with a different approach to this in the in the short term. Alan? Um, is there anything that you've heard or seen that indicates to you this um, p policy, this ban might be under reconsideration? No, I just know the league's pretty intelligent, and I think the pushback's pretty strong. I didn't see the same pushback on the pride sweaters. I think people said, again, there's some logic to it. You say, okay, we're, we're going too far, so where does it stop? That's question number one. How many special interest nights are we going to have? Does the SPCA get a night? Does the, the uh, I'm Irish American, do the Irish Americans get a night? The St. Patrick's Day always get a night. And they say at some point we got to say no, and that's already happened. Leagues have asked for sweaters that you know that's been turned down before. So I understand the policy if they say no sweaters. I don't agree with it again, but I understand it. I don't get this one, so we'll see. I'm hoping something will change. I have no reason to believe it will. I, I have no reason to to believe anyone's told me it will. I think I think you'll see a groundswell that might change it. If the NHL is to step back from a policy like this. Um, often when organizations do this, they, they don't want to step back just for the fact that they don't want to look bad. Um, the NHL will want to, if they, if they do step back, they'll want to step back in, in probably in their minds as gracefully as possible. Do you see a way that they can do this and 
re-ingratiate at least some of the fans that they've offended and, you know, who feel pushed away in this? Because even coming back from this, a lot of fans are still going to say, yeah, but you did it in the first place, even if it was wrong. And I'm still not feeling very included here. Yeah, I haven't I haven't figured that out yet. I think the best way to do it, I've never been afraid to admit I made a mistake. I've made so many in my life. You know, people say to me, well, you screwed up this trade. I say, yeah, I did. You know, you read my book, and I said this was a mistake. And people ask me all the time, okay, you never won in Toronto. You're right, I didn't win in Toronto. I never got the job done in Toronto. I'll concede that. I'll concede some trades I made were horrible. So to me, the best way to deal with a mistake is admit the mistake and move on. Emo Francis told me that when I was a rookie GM. He said, you're going to make mistakes, just admit them and move on. The worst thing in the world is trying to trying to patch it up or cover for it. So to me, it's just let's deal with this, not worry about how it looks, let's fix it. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I want to go back um, to the the first time we ever met which I'm pretty sure you don't remember. And uh, I was uh, uh, 18 at the time, and you were a player agent. And uh, I was uh, going to University of uh, Illinois, Chicago, and my best friend, uh, he became like a brother to me, was a gentleman by the name of Ray Stazak. And Ray Stazak, for those of you who don't know, was this kid from Philadelphia, late bloomer, never put a pair of skates on until he was around 12, 13 years old, Uh, was inspired by the Flyers' cup wins two in a row in the mid-70s, started playing hockey, and he was tough as nails, he was smart, Uh, he could score, he was a heart and soul kind of guy. And uh, he ended up getting a a scholarship to University of Illinois, Chicago, which had a brand new Division I team in the CCHA. And uh, the year we were together was his first year there. He had a great season. Uh, And then I left Illinois and transferred to McGill University. And the next year, Ray had a season for the ages. He was a uh, runner up for the Hobie Baker and, uh, and he was uh, undrafted. So he was a free agent. And after two years of university, uh, university hockey, Brian Burke became his agent and Ray Stazak was uh, one of the most sought after Unre- young, unrestricted free agents in NHL history. And little known fact, it only was for about three weeks. But Berkey signed Ray Stazak to the richest rookie contract in the history of the NHL at that time. And I think it was eclipsed a couple of weeks later by Adam Oates, but he held that honor for three weeks. And uh, after... Uh, Ray had decided with Berkey to sign an NHL deal. Uh, The two of you went on a tour of different NHL teams. And uh, I was at McGill. Uh, Ray gave me a call. Hey, I'm coming into Montreal. 
I was like, you're coming to Montreal. He goes, yeah, I have a dinner with Sir Savard, Jacques Lemaire, uh, and uh, Andre Boudria, who was their uh, chief scout at the time. Uh, and uh, they were staying at a, uh, they, they put Ray and, and Berkey, I believe, at a hotel. It was right down the street from the Montreal Forum. And I went to the hotel to meet Ray. Uh, and he goes, come over here, come meet my agent. And uh, we went over to your hotel uh, room, knocked on the door. Uh, and I remember it like yesterday. You open the door, there you are. He goes, uh, 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 Brian, this is my closest friend, Alan Walsh. It's Brian Burke, my agent, and you and I had a talk. And I actually asked you a bunch of questions of what you did as an agent. I was fascinated uh, by uh, uh, the role of an agent and, uh, he answered some of my questions and, uh, and, and I, I left with Ray and there was an idea in my head. Well, I'm never going to be good enough to play in the NHL, even though that was my dream growing up, but that is a really, really cool job to have representing players. And I'm sure you have no recollection of that meeting at all, but uh, good or bad, Berkey, you can actually be seen as the person who launched my thinking towards becoming an agent one day. A lot of a lot of people in hockey are rolling their eyes right now, saying, "Oh, he's the he's the reason. It's his fault." <laughs> um, I, do remember, I do remember the I do remember the conversation, not the first meeting, but in Montreal. I do remember that, and um, I do remember. Um, I mean, Ray Stazak was uh, my first huge client. I mean, I had a meteoric rise in the agent business, and basically, Ray was just—he was such a great kid. And uh, they call it Chicago—they call it Chicago Circle, I think, even back then, didn't they? Yeah. Or they just changed it. It was. It was. They, they dropped the circle when when we were there. It was UIC. Uh, yeah, University of Illinois, Chicago, but it, before Belmonte that it was, was coach. Val Belmonte, long history with USA Hockey, and the yeah. former assistant coach at Harvard yeah. uh, became the head coach at University of Illinois. And Ray Stasek went to training camp with the with – the, uh, Vancouver. The Red Wings. What's up? Well, he, you, you brought him to Vancouver after his stint in Detroit. Yeah, and then he – that was after, yeah. But yeah. after he, he went to he, his first training camp, he got sent down. And Billy Deneen was the coach. Billy Deneen was a wonderful human being. And he told me Ray's going to be it'd be 20 games Ray will be in the NHL. And then he blew out his shoulder. Right. And he never, never, never played after that. He blew out his shoulder. I brought him to training camp on a tryout in Vancouver five years after that, four or five years after that. And Ray made the team. And our farm team was in Manitoba, I believe. And Ray made the team. We called him in and said, okay, you made the team. You're going to Winnipeg. And he said, no, I just needed to make the team. Uh, now I'm going home. I wow. still keep in touch with Ray. He's running a landscape business and a, a home restoration business in Florida. He's doing great. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I went uh, I, I, I went to Florida, and Ray and, I, Ray and I hung out together. And he's like, uh, come on and work with me for the day. And uh, he's got these huge condo developments that he does landscaping 
uh, for and uh, manages like all of it. And, you know, I'm I spent like six hours with Ray. He's in work boots and we're going from condo development to condo development. And he's telling me all about these bushes and those plants and this special type of grass. And uh, um, he, he was passionate about anything that he did he was incredibly passionate about hockey and and like i said when you when you got to know him everybody around him just loved him he was one of those guys that i would call a natural born leader yeah and, his dad and, died his dad died when he was young he actually took a year off after high school and worked at a steel mill right and, and worked out his hockey at night and that, his nickname was the man of steel Man of Steel. He actually worked at a steel, a steel mill and supported his family while his little brother graduated from high school. Then he went back to playing hockey and going to college. Great yeah. kid. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, so that was the beginning of, uh, of, of me actually uh, uh, getting to know you. A uh, couple of years later, I, I'm in law school and you were speaking at a sports law conference. And, and at the time you had just transitioned or you were transitioning from the player agent business to becoming general manager of the Hartford Whalers. What made you want to do that? You, 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 you came into the agent business at a time when there weren't a lot of agents out there and, and you had a lot of success. What made you then say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go work for a team. Uh, it was real simple. I was at a game in Rochester. I loved the agent business. I enjoyed it. I was good at it. I think it's an important part of the business, an important part of the industry that players have good representation. Um, but I was at a game in Rochester, and Gates Orlando was my client, and Gates was playing in Rochester with Buffalo's farm team, and he'd been sent down, and he was sour. All your players are sour when they're in the minors. They think they got screwed, and and Gates, uh, I was sitting waiting for Gates to come out after the game. I looked down the hall. I saw Donnie Meehan there. And Donnie Meehan had only been in the business a few years before I got into the business. But Donnie Meehan had had, a, again, a meteoric rise in the agent business. He was a big star. And he remains a friend of mine to this day. But I remember looking down the hall. He's almost exactly 10 years older than I am. And I thought, in 10 years, do I want to be standing outside a dress room in Rochester, Minnesota, Rochester, New York? And I just said, no, it's time. So I talked to the first guy I talked to was Cliff Fletcher. I asked him, I said, do you think I can make the crossover? He said, well, it'd be tough. But then I approached Pat Quinn and talked to him about it, and he offered me a job. So um, right before that, uh, Dean Lombardi had left to go to San Jose, Minnesota, and then San Jose right before that. So he was the first guy, I think, to make the jump. But because he was, an agent. Of, he, he was an agent. He was an agent. But a whole bunch of guys have crossed over from the – Asian side now, you know, Montreal with uh, Ken Hughes, Ken Hughes, who I just saw the other day. And uh, my daughter's a freshman at, uh, at McGill. So I'll be spending some time in Montreal. Um, there's, I mean, you go through the list of general managers in the NHL right now and in the recent past, and there is a direct line between the agent business and going into NHL management these days. But, uh, but when you did it, as you said, you were the probably the most prominent person at the time to do it. Um, I think uh, Dean Lombardi 
may have had, you know, a couple of clients when he, when he went over, um, uh, people don't remember, but, uh, George McPhee was an agent for a while. Uh, there were a whole bunch of guys who started off in the agent business and went off to, to work long, long careers in, in NHL management. Uh, what did you like about running a team? Well, the the problem with being an agent was again, I, I really enjoyed it. You become actually you're closer to your players than anyone except their wife. You're closer yep. than their mom and dad. You're closer than their brothers. They trust you. Get a trusted relationship with them. Not not their first contract, but as you grow with them, you have a relationship in their in their lives that's unique. And it's really special. And I like that part of it. I enjoyed being in that, like with Ray Stazak. Ray, Ray said, I'm staying in school unless I get $250,000 to sign. I, I believe he got 700 to sign or 750 to sign. And I remember calling Ray from the airport in Detroit. I was sick as a dog the day I did that deal. And I called Ray and he said, uh, am I leaving school? I said, yeah. He said, you got me the 250? I said, no, I got you way more than that. He said, you got me two seventy five. <laughs> I said, Ray, Ray, if you're only going up twenty five grand in an increment, it's gonna be we're gonna be here for a while. He goes, you didn't you didn't get me five hundred thousand. I said, yeah, it's north of there. He, he said, afterwards he said to me, um, what kind of car do you want? He offered to buy me a car. I said, that's not how this works, Ray. You're not buying me a car. But you, you get a great relationship with your clients, a special relationship. It's important. What, what these guys do is important. And so what I, what I just felt, it was repetitive. I felt I'm going to be doing the same types of deals, um, and there's no wins or losses in it. There's big wins when you get a big contract. It's a big deal. But you go, you leave, you go to the games, and you don't care who won or lost. I couldn't stand that. Same way I worked at the league. The reason I left the league is I love working for Gary Bettman, but the reason I left the league was I would go to the games and pray that knowing I didn't, the referees didn't screw up because I was in charge of them. They didn't have to suspend anyone. That's an awful way to live if you like to win. You know, never get W's or L's. It's an awful way to live. So that's what drove me out of it. Not, not the job. I loved working for Gary. Mm-hmm. Now, you were also um, very involved uh, uh, on the collective bargaining side uh, with the NHL. And I think you also had some involvement and a lot of input uh, when you were running NHL teams. What are your thoughts about how the NHL has grown the game and, and what can it do better? Well, in my new role, obviously, I'm the executive director of a union. And yep. people, have, people have pointed out the irony of that a number of times to me. said, I saw you sitting at that table, sitting on the same side with Bettman and Daly. How do you sleep? <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I didn't – I think our players would say, I never took a position against the players. I just took a position against the, the economic side of things where I thought – the union had it wrong. And I, I think history proved me out that I was right on that. But as far as I remember, I was talking, telling someone the story the other day, Trevor Gillies was a player that played for me. He played for me in Portland. We called him up to Anaheim. He got in a fight. He got a concussion. Uh, after the game, he felt fine. He signed his Form 25A. We sent him back down to Portland the next day. Kevin O'Neill called me two days later and said, uh, Trevor's not right. I said, what do you mean he's not right? He said, he's got symptoms. I said, what kind of symptoms? 
He said concussion symptoms. I said, put him on a plane. Now, he had signed his Form 25A. We didn't have to pay him any money. We didn't have to put him back on his one way, but we did. We flew him to, to Anaheim. I said, Trevor, when you feel better, you tell me and we'll put you back down. He was up there, I think, for a month. So we always tried to treat our players the right way. I never had a grievance. I had one grievance in 30 years, one arbitration in 30 years. So I always felt I was on the player's side of things. I think players, if you ask any of my players, they tell you I was a player's coach, player's GM. Um, and so to me, it's, it's, uh, I think, I think we have a wonderful opportunity with the women. And I think it's, uh, what I look back on where we fought with the union, I think we took some positions that we needed to take to ensure the survivability of the game and then to, to grow it. And I think the cap's going on five million next year. I think the league has done an amazing job in partnership with the players where it's now possible for the players to make a lot of money compared to the old days and the teams to still survive. Um, I, I, I got to ask you about um, uh, this, this new league, the PWHL and, and your role in it. I mean, obviously it's something that is eagerly anticipated. Um, you know, I think for a lot of years, Brian, a lot of people said women's hockey can't work. Nobody will watch it. Um, clearly that's not the case here. Uh, but what are you looking forward to this league proving to the world? Well, you know what, Adam, women have never paid to watch women play sports. They just haven't because they've never had the opportunity. The WNBA is the only, only model of any significance. Other than that, it's some college sports, which have been historically poorly attended, They've never said, we're going to show you the best woman in the world and we're going to sell tickets to watch them play. They've just started to do that now. WNBA is on a break-even or profitable basis, finally. Women are the, are the bulk of the supporters. The new women's soccer league is drawing extremely well. Expansion teams, uh, expansion team just went for $50 million in the women's soccer league. Their TV rights just went up and, and just went up a mega amount. So we're getting there. But it's the first time that women have been the, given the opportunity. Like women, female hockey players, you, if you want to see a, a, a interesting hockey game, go watch Canada-U.S. It's sold out 18,000 people, sell out on, on the spot. But that's international, and that's not, you know, that's a best-on-best best international tournament. To get women to watch a game between the Minnesota, whatever the new team's going to be called, and Montreal on a Tuesday night, we'll see. I think it's going to go well. I'm excited about it. I never thought I'd get a chance to work in women's hockey. And you see, everyone says now, because it's fashionable, everyone says, well, I always like women's hockey. No, they didn't. Like when I was in Toronto one night, I did a charity dinner. I asked, I said to the audience, how many people here support women's hockey? And they all raised their hand. I said, yeah, really? How many people have tickets to the Furies game tomorrow? The Pro League in Toronto. How many? Zero. There were 86 people at a game one night. 86 that bought tickets. So we've never given women the opportunity. We're going to give them that opportunity. There's only six teams, so there's really good players on every team. we got a chance to do this right. It's got it's properly funded and properly staffed. We're going to make this work. I love that. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Although I don't necessarily agree with um, uh, what you said about uh, – uh, the NHL's positions and collective bargaining. Uh, I'm sure you're not shocked to hear that. Uh, and maybe one day uh, you can come back and we could spend an entire hour 
uh, dissecting and talking about the uh, NHL and NHLPA's history from uh, the 1992 strike, the 94-95 lockout, all the way to where we are today. And probably people would find that pretty fascinating, but that's uh, that's a debate for another day. Um, no, that'd, be a, that'd be a good idea. That'd be fun. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. All right. Let's let's set up a part two for later on in the year when it fits with your schedule, and we can uh, we can talk about that. I got a a lot of stories uh, that have been shared with me from ninety two, ninety four, ninety five. I'm sure you've got a a, a lot of them. Uh, many people don't know that you were one of the people behind the scenes instrumental in. Um, in moving Alan Eagleson out of the game. Um, and, and, and we'd love to talk about your role in that and what the league was like back then and what the players association was like back then. You had a, a close friendship and association with Bob Goodnow and somewhere that went off the rails. Uh, you were one of the people that uh, recommended and supported Bob for the executive director job. Uh, um, and, and I'd love to get into that one day, but again, that's a debate and a conversation for another day. I think people would find it fascinating. Um, Berkey, you've been incredibly, incredibly generous with your time, uh, on a Saturday. And I can't tell you how appreciative I am for you to be here and uh, share your insights and talk to us about, um, uh, about, the whole special initiatives and the, the leaks policy and, um, and, and just you speak from the heart and, and the issue is something that um, is not going to go away. It's something we all care about. Um, and I think that uh, uh, your voice is a critical voice uh, that demands to be heard and people admire and respect your leadership on this and and so do i so thank you very much thank you very much thanks adam thank you brian this has been agent provocateur with alan walsh and adam wilde follow alan walsh on twitter at walsh a subscribe wherever you get your podcast by searching agent provocateur and hitting the subscribe button youtube.com slash sdpn 